You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Rick Bassman here for the Talking Tough podcast. Uh, really excited about our guest today, but like I always do, I'm going to hold for a moment or two who that is uh, while I get through my uh, my normal excuses up front. And the excuses is if you hear of an explosion of noise happen in the background, because I live up in the, uh, the wilderness of Maui here with my four little crazy pit bulls. And if someone comes anywhere within a quarter mile of the house, they are going to let us know. So apologies in advance if we hear the uh the the crazy burst of noise and i also like to use that to uh to promote one thing every week and it's the same thing every week it's our nonprofit, the bully dog rescue coalition you can see us at bullydogrescue.org my dogs ramon and gogo and eos and dennis are the spokes doggies for the uh for the organization and what we do is we advocate for and raise awareness for and raise money for a group of four amazing ladies we call Bullies Angels. They're four ladies like my good friend, the actress Linda Blair, who have invested their lives in these giant pit bull sanctuaries around different parts of the country. They're saving the world for our beloved bully breeds. They need our support and your support. So bullydogrescue.com. I got that out of the way up front. Um, you uh, listeners, hopefully now, are dialed into what Talking Tough is all about. And, you know, when, when we talk about the guests that we have, we, the tagline is the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. And we talk about their stories of triumph. We talk about their falls uh, to the bottom if they've had one and, and their climb back to the very top. Um, what I normally would do when introducing a guest is I would um, talk about you know the the yin and the yang, the the their life at the top, the um, the 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 words, the the description words that make them are make them who people think they are, and then I would talk more about the other side of things, the the human side of them. Um, our guest today is a guy I've known for a long time, and he's he's a good good human being. But I'm going to save that for later because I, w- I want to focus on the stuff that makes a reputation. And, and I want to do that because in today's world, more and more, uh, I think we tend to judge a book by the cover. And I'm not going to get into politics. It's not my thing at all, other than to say that we, we live in a pretty divisive time where people are ready to accuse or, or judge or form an immediate impression. And uh, our guest today is pr- probably the, the poster child for the tough guy movement, if I could say that. I mean, you know, the, the physical size aside at six, five and 300 pounds and whatnot, this guy, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, heavy metal recording star, sure. Uh, consultant on Sons of Anarchy, star on Sons of Anarchy. Um, but, um, you know, former incarcerated felon having done real federal time. And we'll talk about that. And uh, a, a guy who, if you search him, and I can say this only because it's searchable, it's the president of the uh, Southern California chapter of the Hell's Angels. I, I want to welcome on today a longtime friend of mine, an absolutely fascinating guy, Rusty Coons. Rusty, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing? All right, man. I'm doing good. How are you? Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. 
I remember when I first asked you, Rusty, we've known each other for, for years now. Um, I remember when I first asked you about coming onto the podcast, I was actually like a, a little hesitant to, to ask because I, I know you keep things close to the vest. I know there's stuff that you um, just are, are not quote unquote supposed to talk about. Um, but man, it's it's really kind of like blown me away in, in a good way how, how open you've been in all our discussions. And I look forward to... Uh, to our guest today, getting to um, to know what you're all about. So I, I want to ask you, like, when when you walk into a room for the first time, someone sees you, and if they know who you are, you know, in relation to to say the the motorcycle club, what what do you think people's first impression of you is before they get to know you? You know, it just depends. I've heard different things. A lot of people they look away. So they act like they didn't notice me. Like uh, I've been, you know, going to gyms off and on since I was about 20 years old. And, and I'm an old guy now. And uh, I've had guys that I've got to know over the years at these gyms. And they say, yeah, when I first saw you over there, I'd always stay in the other corner of the gym. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't the way I acted or anything. It's just the way when you're, you know, uh, you know, six and a half feet tall, it's a bit imposing to people sometimes. And the funny thing is, though, is I have, if I have somebody with me that's walking behind me, they're the ones that notice the stares or the looks, you know, uh, that people give when I'm not looking their direction. But it is, it's an odd feeling. It, it makes me antisocial sometimes where I just don't even want to go to public places. And, and I don't, a lot of people, they hide it real well. They don't say anything. And, and a lot of people don't notice anyway. But, uh, but it's kind of an uncomfortable feeling sometimes. Yeah, I, I would imagine, and you know, and I know what you're talking about. Um, you know, having been in the pro wrestling business for so long, especially with, you know, I don't, I don't want to say the world's toughest guys, but certainly guys that look the part. And um, you know, I tell guys sometimes, you, you remind me of my, of my dogs. <laughs> They're like, gee, thanks. Why is that? I'm like, well, you know, they see me walking down the street with four pit bulls. They cross the street, and. What they don't know is my dogs are probably the nicest dogs they'll ever meet. And uh, I find that with a, a lot of the guys also. I, I think a primary difference, you definitely look the part. There's no doubt about it. But you, you, also, have a, you also have a reputation. So we were, we were talking about, you know, people look at you, what do they think? People that know who you are or maybe have searched you on, on Google, how, how do they approach you, if at all? Are, are they nervous? Do they come up and ask you questions? How does that usually work? It just depends on who it is. You know, some people don't act any different to me than they would with anybody else, which which is fine, you know what I mean? Because I'm not even thinking. When I walk around daily doing whatever I do and, I, and I'm going to, you know, do, do my errands and I, I'm out there in society, I'm not even thinking about any of that. I don't realize that to some people it might be, uh, you know, special for them to meet somebody that's been either on a TV show or in a band or in a club or, or something. And uh, so I'm not even thinking about it a lot of the time, but uh, some people get, uh, it, it's kind of funny, you know, like you'll do signings and, and you'll be, uh, you know, doing pictures with fans sometimes. Uh, and some of the girls, they get so giddy that you can feel them shaking while you're uh, standing with them to do a picture. And, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's cool. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm happy that they're happy. You know what I mean? But, uh, yes, you just, yeah, you get all kinds of weirdness. You know what I mean? One of the things though, 
is in the old days, you know, around the motorcycle culture, I used to spend a lot of time going to bars, even though I was uh, training uh, at least five days a week and, and I didn't drink very much and I didn't use drugs. I was still in that environment all the time. And when you get around drunk people, that's probably the most uh, unfun thing because people that are drinking, they're just, I mean, sometimes like with women, it's like true serum, which is okay. I don't mind that part so much, but, but with men, you get some people that just can't control their, um, their mouth. If you want to put it that way. And it's, they stupidly lose their fear, don't they? Well, they get just crazy. I don't even care if they're afraid of me. I just don't want to be bothered. You know what I mean? And, and I'm not one, I hate bullies. And uh, I'm, I'm never going to brag about anything that I've ever done fighting or anything. You know, it's a uh, um, and I'm not going to say anything about that. But you get people, man, that are just they're looking for whatever when they drink. They, you know, some of them don't have teeth sometimes because they do it so often, <laughs> you know, but uh, I don't enjoy that, man. That's why I don't even go to bars hardly at all anymore. No, I, I, I hear you, man. I mean, for, for everything you are, you've got to be a target for all the reasons you just discussed someone using their, their alcohol for bravery for a minute. And uh, I, I, I could only imagine, you know, and I can tell you, you know, as far as like how you're regarded, I think you stand apart from just about everybody I know. Um, I mean, again, you, you've known me for a long time and you know, some of the, the guys that have been in my circle and whatnot. And I mean, they're definitely guys that look the part. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think there's, I think there's an extra layer of, I don't want to say fear, that could be in some people's eyes, but respect or, or awe because of, you know, the, this this one particular thing that's part of your world. A few years ago, you, and I don't mean to be cryptic, so I'll get to it. A few years ago, you had invited me and Andrew Bernarski to, um, to a party you were throwing in the Valley. And if memory serves, it was a giant uh, toys for Tots drive at the Hell's Angels Clubhouse in the San Fernando Valley. Do you remember that? I've done a bunch of those up there. I used to be in that charter. Yeah, so uh, I remember you showing up there though one time. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. what year it was. Yeah, and I actually brought one of my dogs with me. And and did I got to tell you for for being in the places I've been in my life and seeing the things that I've seen, which are a lot more than most at least, that was a whole different experience. And it was. Um, you know, for those out there who might try to envision it, it was everything that I ever thought it might be, and and then more with the the people that were there. Um, you know, what what could have easily looked like a very intimidating environment, and I don't know if it was because of um, you know what what the cause was that the party was revolving around, but man, what what a cool bunch of people, and and it just. It, it struck me. And, and I know, again, it's, it, it is what it is. Members of the public are involved, so the behavior is probably a little different than usual. And, um, no, even actually, it's, it's not. It, it's not. I mean, I'm not going to talk. I never talk about the club or, or politics with the club, but I can't say at a public event. Uh, I can make a few comments about that. And, and we treat people with the same respect that we would like to be treated with. You know, and, and if somebody treats you bad, you're going to treat them bad. You know, but but if uh, we like to, I would rather be humble and be a good, uh, host when people come to a function I'm putting on, uh, and not be an asshole in any way. I can't imagine why anybody would want to be any different than that. You know, I mean, we're doing a, uh, 
service, we're trying to get, you know, toys for kids that uh, are underprivileged. So what we usually do is, is we'll hook up with a local church that's, uh, that's in need of, of help. And we'll go out and we'll, through all of our connections throughout the community, uh, all over Southern California, we'll get toys donated. Even some of the toy manufacturing companies will donate direct to us. And then we'll drop off uh, truckloads of the toys uh, to the churches for their, for their kids and extended family, you know. And, uh, I mean, it would just be, you, you, you have that stereotype of the biker, which is the real asshole, whatever, you know what I mean? And yes. I get that, you know what I mean? And I don't like that. I, 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 I want to be the total opposite of that. I, I don't want to be around that. And uh, people that have to act that way, um, I don't like to have them in my sphere personally. No, and you know, and, I, and I've known you always to be exactly what you're you're describing, man. You've always been so cool and so genuine. And people that are listening, while you're listening, I Google Rusty, R U S T Y, of course, C O O N E S, right, Rusty? Yes. Because uh, I just want everybody to see um, what Rusty looks like, and I'm saying this for a reason, Rusty, because people might be going, "Oh, well, this is like the nice like accounting type guy in in the group," and. Uh, I think when they see you, like they're when they see you, they're gonna say, "Wow, yeah, that's exactly what we, you know, what we've what we pictured um, in our minds, and and maybe what they've seen in movies like Stone Cold and whatnot." So, you know, it's interesting to me how outwardly you you probably fit that image to a T more than any human I can think of. But there's the other side of you, man. That you've had such an interesting life. Um, I mean, you mentioned church a minute ago, and. I, I'm looking at the notes that I took to prepare as best as I could. And, and there's two words I have on here a lot, man. And there, there are such dichotomies. One, one is, one is church. The other is, is drugs. Cause I know you've been on so many sides of each of those um, issues th throughout your life. And, you know, Rusty and I first met and Rusty may not remember, but you were, you were running a big drug and alcohol rehabilitation, uh, recovery place that you owned in Laguna Canyon. And uh -huh. I, you had a guest house at that property and I actually stayed in the guest house for a while. I was working with you on producing some entertainment events. And so here you are doing what you've done in life and people can, you know, look you up if they have, if they haven't already and see you were incarcerated for, for distribution and whatnot. Yet here you are um, founding and running a, a drug and alcohol rehab. Why, first step treatment center. Why did you get into that? You know, in the uh, in the eighties, I had a lot of friends that uh, uh, became uh, cokeheads, and even before that, heroin addicts. Uh, uh, even my own brother, he he succumbed to being a heroin addict. He actually committed suicide, and he was one year younger than me. And uh, I have two brothers. One's still alive. The other one's a preacher. He's got a church in North Carolina. A great guy. We talk all the time. I just talked to him last night. But uh, uh, my my other brother, uh, he just was one of those people that was susceptible to addiction. And from the time he was uh, about 17 or 18 until the time he was 25, he was addicted to heroin off and on. And uh, it was just horrible to see um, the path that it, it took him down. And... Uh, at the time when it first started, I was still a teen 
and I was his older brother, and I tried doing everything I could to get him off of it. I even uh, took him against his will and held him for a couple of weeks to dry him out, made him go to work with me, and uh, he was in the cold sweats on the floor while I was painting apartment buildings and stuff, you know what I mean? And then I finally got him dried out, and I uh, felt comfortable enough to let him go for a minute. And uh, I actually rewarded him. I said, here, man, take my bike. I had a couple of bikes. I said, take my bike and go ride around, have a good time today. And uh, he didn't come back for a while, you know, and he was back on the stuff again. And I just went through this off and on for years with him. And there was just no winning. It's like when somebody is addicted to whether it be speed, heroin or, or crack or whatever, they've got to want to do it themselves and they've got to hit bottom. And most of the time, that's not even enough. So it's really, it's a tough one. And uh, then I had my son, Cody, he went through the same thing. Uh, and he's not with us anymore. And he actually uh, overdosed. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing. And, and a lot of parents and a lot of relatives and a lot of friends, they spend, you know, hours and hours and, and days and years of their lives trying to help people they love and, and even people they don't love just trying to get them off drugs so so i've been through a lot of this since the 70s and, and the 80s and in 1991 i had that big place in uh, laguna that, that you're talking about that you were at and uh i went through the process and, and uh, got a conditional use permit and got it licensed and got it accredited to carp and uh we were actually a, a licensed uh, detox and treatment center and, and day treatment. And um, that was just, the timing was horrible though, because uh, the government at that time, uh, with 19, around 1992, they had the elections. And uh, when the Clintons came in, uh, Hillary Clinton wanted to nationalize healthcare and go to a single payer system, if you remember. Yep, of course. And, the insurance companies were freaking out because that was going to put them out of business. So what they started doing is, is they started uh, limiting uh, chemical dependency uh, payouts for insurance policies slowly, not all at once. They wanted to do it a little at a time so they didn't get called on it. And they started moving money offshore and uh, tightening up a real bad. And then they uh, completely, took away chemical dependency with a lot of policies and they started uh, using their, uh, you know, their connections with, uh, with representatives and senators to actually get chemical dependency knocked down to where it wasn't even recognized. So, and this is right when my business was really, I was vested heavily in it. And I opened up a second treatment center in Fontana, Fontana so yeah. bigger than the one in Laguna. And, uh, it really hurt us. And so I hung in there as long as I could and they, and they just kept cutting our rates and cutting everything. It was just, getting yeah, the insurance and industry and the rehab industry is demand. We could, we could go on and on about that one forever. I've had my experience with it as well. Yeah. So I, I feel you. And, you know, yeah. sometimes we end up being the victim of bad timing in life. Like I opened that, uh, I don't know if you ever came to it. I opened that gym in uh, mission Viejo in 1998 called extreme university. And it was, the first true, oh, yeah, I okay, so yeah, first true MMA gym in California, and mm -hmm. probably were before our time. We invested time about investment. Oh my God, put everything I had into it, and the world just wasn't ready for it, you man. So sometimes we, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, and 
you know, yeah. what, what really fascinates me about this, Rusty, is people, what I'm about to say, it's, it's all public knowledge. It's searchable. Um, people know that you did, um, you did federal time for, for distribution. Is there methamphetamine distribution? Is that right? No, actually, are you the federal? See, I did state. Actually, I've done time three different times in my life. Back in okay. uh, the early seventies, I went to CYA, California Youth Authority, mm-hmm. and uh, me and some kids went out and we uh, got drunk and and tore up some schools and vandalized them. And then uh, the next weekend, my buddies went out and did it again, but they got caught. And so everybody, being you know little kids, they were all telling on each other. And when they picked me up, I wasn't you know, cooperating. So they put me in juvenile hall and I still wouldn't cooperate. So they made an example out of me and sent me to CYA. And, uh, when I got out of CYA, um, that's when I got my first Harley when I was 19. And, uh, then I, I come back and my dad was, uh, you know, the crop dusting business. So I'd worked for my dad my whole life since I was about 13 years old. I'd worked there after school at the uh, airport. And he told me, he says, uh, he says, okay, you got this Harley, and I got an accident. He says, if you buy another Harley, he says, I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to fire you. And so I got my insurance check, and what, and I had a bike like the same day, man. I went out and got another bike. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> so, so I, showed, I showed up back at home with the bike. He's waiting at the door. He says, you're, you're fired, and you're kicked out. I said, all right, whatever. So I'm gone. So I, I moved down to Southern California right then, you know, and, and – uh, that's you know, where all the fun started, there. huh? That's yeah, man. I mean, it was the best move I ever made. But uh, you know, being in the bike culture in, in that time um, was even—it was more—it was a little different. It wasn't accepted by society like it is now. You know, uh, if you had tattoos, people looked differently at you unless you were in that culture, and there, there wasn't the uh, the mass. Uh, uh, of uh, tattoo shops all around the world and not everybody wanted them, you know, and uh, being in the choppers and bikes and all that stuff that wasn't accepted by mainstream society in any way at that time, you know, so, this is all where the term one percenters comes from. Is that right? There's such a small portion well, that was, of society. That started way, it, yeah, but that started way before back, you know, that term came out, the AMA kind of uh, labeled people in, in motorcycle clubs. Uh, some of them as one percenters, that make the rest of them look bad or, or something like uh, that, the other 99, you know, or whatever. So people wore it like a, like a badge, you know, on their sleeve or whatever. But, uh, you know, I saw, so I've always loved that culture. And, uh, you know, as, as I, um, progressed in Senegal, I got to know more and more people and, and, you know, every, everywhere you go. And at that time, I remember about, I was 20 years old. I started going to the gym all the time. And I'd go to parties and uh, people, you know, hey, man, you want a hit of this? No, no, I don't want none. But what are you, uh, you a narc or something? Fuck no, man. I fucking just don't want none. People, people thought, uh, you know, that's weird that a guy that's, that's into motorcycles and all this stuff wouldn't want a, a, a hit. You know what I mean? At that time, the gym thing wasn't a big thing either. You know, there were people doing it, but it was a much uh, more selective than it is now where everybody goes to the gym. You know? yep. So, uh, you know, I, I just, I, that was my thing, man. It probably kept me out of a lot of trouble because I had to go like five nights a week and I had to work during the day. But the thing is, uh, with me, 
I was getting by and I was doing okay, but there was, there's always opportunity to do other things too that are, that are out there. You know what I mean? So I had a little side thing going on over here, over there. And sometimes your thing that you're doing on the side ends up doing much better than what you're doing legitimately. And you end up kind of leaning that direction, you know? So then, uh, 1982 rolls along. I'm in Laguna beach and, uh, you know, I get, uh, set up on a deal and I end up going to state prison. And nope. that was back before that was back before the omnibus crime bill. Uh, and remember that when that basketball star in the mid eighties died on, uh, of a heart attack and he was doing cocaine, Lynn bias, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Sure. Yeah. Well, that was a big deal because, uh, he was a star and, uh, I think he was out of, uh, somewhere up there by Washington, you know, in that district. So it, they made a big deal out of that. And they enacted the omnibus crime bill, which changed sentencing for criminals, gave more power to the prosecutors. It was harder to get bail and all that stuff. Well, you know, my case in 82 was under the old law and it was, you could actually get a real plea bargain. But after that, things were real tough. And that was during that whole period of time when, um, you know, they had uh, the Colombians were flooding in from South America and coming into all of the cities and they were hooking up with people and, uh, and making the inroads so that they could get their uh, relatives and everybody bringing things up from uh, Colombia. And uh, originally they were all going through uh, the Windward Passage over by Florida, you know, going south of there only like uh, 1100 miles to columbia from florida you know the tip to the tip you know and then when that got all burned out around the mid 80s then then the people started going through mexico and shut because they were shutting that that pipeline down you know and then you got all this stuff with all the cartels and all the craziness it was pretty crazy time you you were around all that you you saw it's kind of like the stuff we see on 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 Narcos now, I guess, or the movie yeah. with Johnny Depp. I mean, you, so you were not only around it, I guess you're saying you were part of, part of that life. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to say I have a little knowledge about a lot. Fair of enough. <laughs> All right, cool. And would you end up incarcerated for that second time though? What, what was the charge? Uh, second time was, was cocaine and, and weapons possession. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And, and so then, uh, I got out, I did, did my time. And then I was out on uh, parole for three years and uh, it wasn't, let's see, I was off parole in 89 and 91 is when I opened up that treatment center. And you know, it's kind of funny because I had a lot of equity in that property. I'd owned that property from 82 to about 95 or 96, I think 96. That was and a beautiful a piece of property, man. Laguna Canyon. That was so nice. Yeah, that was a big sprawling, uh, you know, thing there. But uh, so I had a lot of equity. So what I did is, is uh, I sold all my airplanes except one. So I had some cash, and then I uh, refinanced the property, and I had I had a big bundle to put into that uh, treatment center, right? So I hadn't opened it yet, and uh, I'm down hanging out at at one of the. Uh, places where we all rode to on Sundays called place called BVG. And this guy comes up to me, I'm drinking a beer, hanging out with some buddies. And this weirdo comes up, says, Hey, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? I says, what's up? He says, Hey man, uh, 
you know, I was wondering if you knew where I could get some uh, cocaine or something. And I fucking jumped up and that guy ran out the fucking door, you know. And when he ran out the door, I look and I see two local narcs sitting right there at the bar. You know what I mean? So I didn't give it any second thought because I just thought it was just some weird coincidence. Those guys were in there all the time. And this guy I'd never seen before. Right. So the next Sunday I go to the same place. I'm hanging out at the same spot and the same guy comes in and says, Hey man, Hey man, I want to apologize for what I said last time and stuff. I just, can I buy you a beer? I said, I got a beer. He says, uh, Oh, okay. Well, um, can I ask you for some advice? I said, what? And he, and I was kind of irritated with this guy already, you know, oh, so I would imagine. Right. Yeah. I had no idea what was coming though, but let me tell you, that's why I'm telling the story. So the guy, uh, he says, well, you know, I just got an insurance settlement and, uh, for 150 grand, man. And I wondered, uh, what would you do? With, how would I invest that the best, best return? I said, I don't know, you know, uh, real estate, you know, cars, motorcycles, I don't know, whatever. He says, you know, I was thinking of something more lucrative. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, like cocaine. And, really, and I jumped up and chased the dude and he ran out again. You know what I mean? Oh, man. All right. Man, what the fuck, man? So, so this is on a Sunday, right? So the next day I had an appointment with a guy from the U.S. Postal Service that I wanted to talk to about getting a contract to treat postal workers for alcohol and drugs when they, you know, when they're addicted and for my treatment center that I'm getting ready to open. So I got up early and I went down to meet this guy at a local restaurant and have breakfast with him. And while I was down there, my house was being raided and no kidding. There was like 70, 60 to 70 man task force, uh, ATF assault team, there was like 24 ATF assault teams nationwide at that time. They were looking for anything, you know, and, um, DEA led by a woman. And this, this guy, I guess is the guy that was on the warrant. He didn't even know me, but he'd been busted for dealing weed and he turned into an informant. They said, can you get near this guy? They, they tried to get him next to me and it wasn't working, but they went ahead and they lied on their warrant, got a warrant, came in, shot the hell out of my house, started it on fire. There were, there were fire trucks there. Um, so I'm down by, after I met with this guy, I don't know any of this is going on. I go to the bank and they pick me up in town and, uh, they say, you're not under arrest, but, uh, we're going to have to detain you and take you to your house. There's an army of people at your house. I go up to my house. I see the fire trucks. I see all this stuff going on I'm saying, what the fuck? You know what I mean? And, uh, there was absolutely nothing to base this on. They totally lied to do this thing. So, so anyhow, I didn't make a big deal out of it and I fixed the place and I went on and I uh, should have sued their asses for it, but I didn't. And uh, I started up the treatment center. So yeah, that's that story. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of back. It's a lot of back and forth from one extreme to the other, isn't it? Oh yeah. Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and, and you, you mentioned the third time, but the reason I want to bring up the yeah. third time is one thing that really wow. fascinates me is when you were incarcerated, there was a big movement called the Free Rusty Campaign. You had so much support with so many people trying to get you out. So not so much about, you know, why did you go in? What happened? But when you were in, why why do you think people did that? What was the motivation well, behind you helping know, you? One of the things one of the things was is 
I was arrested for conspiracy to distribute ephedrine and, uh, and I was arrested for some other charges with meth that I had nothing to do with. And there was a flimsy connection to me with, with this, uh, ephedrine conspiracy. Now, ephedrine is a chemical and it normally would carry four years for what I was arrested for, but I got eight because that case back in 82, I didn't plead guilty till 84. And so it was like 16, 17 years that hadn't fell off as something that they could enhance me for. So they doubled my, I pled guilty to eight years on the ephedrine conspiracy. And I, I actually would have got four if I didn't have that other case from way back. Okay. But the funny thing is when I got arrested for this thing is, um, I had a lot of friends that came forward to put up their property. We had $4 million in equity for properties with myself and all my friends put up their property and I couldn't get bail. Now there was no weapons. There was no violence and there were no drugs, but I couldn't get bail because I was a hell's angel. And really? that was wow. rather okay. apparent. Everybody knew this. It was bullshit. It was a total political trap. Not to mention that I took the rap for another guy that was an informant that I didn't know was an informant. You know what I mean? It was a setup, you know, but anyhow, so I took my medicine. I'm not going to interview. I'm not going to try to unload it on nobody else. And I'm not going to do any of that shit. I'm going to take it. So I did, you know, but there was a lot of people that, that uh, respected the way that was handled and they respected me and they knew me before. And, and it was, uh, it was really good to have that, that kind of support. And did it make a difference? I mean, how did, how did that make a difference for you while you were in? Well, when, when you're inside, uh, you know, when, like if you receive a, a letter in the mail right now, it doesn't mean that much to you. We don't care about mail that much. You know, our bills come in the mail. When we talk to people on the phone, that's how we either see them in person or we're communicating. When, when you're in prison, all that's ripped away from you. You know what I mean? So you don't, your contact, your lifeline to the world is mail and the uh, 15 minute or so phone calls that you get to make, you know, when you get on the phone. So mail's important. So every day that I was in there, I had mail. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, but there was always mail. That's and awesome. That's important, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, like, like I say, here, people don't care. In there, when mail call comes, everybody's listening. You know what I mean? Human connection's a big deal, man. Yeah. There's a lot of people these days that, that aren't in prison that aren't that have no human connection and and they suffer for it. So I can only imagine how much how multiplied that is while you're there. Yeah. How how how, how will you go ahead? I'm sorry. Yeah, the website. You know, there was people. Uh, there was posts on there. It was the freerusty.com, and it had a forum called Rusty's Forum, and people would print out the forum and send it to me, and then I would read it and I would respond and then send it back and then they would post it on the internet. So we had a lot of interaction going on that way, which was pretty cool, you know. Yeah, that's got to keep you looking forward also, I, I would imagine. I, I just have to ask you. Go on. When you're in there, you have to, to reset your mind. you got to stay busy, and you're, you're locked up in a cell, you know, a lot. So you've got to uh, get in your head. you got to do a lot of reading, do some writing. In my case, I did both, and I studied, you know, a lot of books and uh, made the best of it. And, and then just by chance, while I was in there, I got re-inspired to start playing music again. And, uh, you know, so I started uh, writing songs and, and uh, then I uh, 
hooked up with some other guys that were into music and we, and I started a band, started playing music when I was in uh, Oregon. And then I got transferred to Texas and I was playing music there. And, uh, uh it was like really a good thing because it, it, it kept me completely immersed, uh, with, with things to do. You know, on your on your data, I can imagine it's good to stay busy there. I, I want to ask you a question that I think a lot of guys out there would be wondering this: how how, how were you treated in prison by the by the guards and by your the fellow inmates? Both uh, just just like anybody else, you know what I mean? It's a, people people that go in there and have a hard time have a hard time, but usually because of them, not because of other people. You know, they either uh, carry themselves like a victim, and they get victimized. Uh, or they do scandalous, stupid things and they lie and, and do the same shit like they did on the street, you know, that got them in trouble. And, uh, you know, so, uh, if you, if you're, if you're a man of your word, honorable, and you carry yourself like a man and, and, uh, you know, you, you're not going to have a problem in there. Uh, and if you do, it's not going to be because of you, you know, and normally what I did is I got lucky, uh, the first place I was at, I was in there, MDCLA. I was downtown. I was there for 21 months, and they had like a weight machine on the uh, deck there. So I got to do a, a little bit of a workout on that. And then the second place I went to was Sheridan, Oregon, and they had full weights outside at, at an outside area. And uh, they had a riot there right before I left, and uh, they pulled all the weights out of the place. But just by chance, right after the riot, they shipped me and a bunch of guys out of there and I got shipped to the big spring and they still had weights there until the time I got out. So it's like the gyms out. followed you everywhere you went in prison. You got your job. Yeah, I got lucky. That's man. Cool. And so, and the funny thing is, it's like, you know, I'd already been doing this for a long time. So I, I'd go out there and I'd put like four plates, you know, like four Oh five on there. And I'm doing sets with four Oh five, you know, the first day I show up and uh, these people, it's like it gets around the yard like like uh, wildfire. Oh man, you see that white boy out there? You know, blah blah blah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, uh, sure. And I and that was not the heaviest I did. That was just my sets. You know what I mean? So anyhow, um, what's your what's your biggest lift, Rusty? Not that much, but it was five oh five. Five oh five. That's a lot. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, man. Yeah, not a, not a lot compared to some people though, but. That's like five plates and a nickel on each end. Uh, I know so exactly what it is. And, and two yep. nickels. That's yeah. right. That's exactly. Hey, did I tell you? Uh, did I did I tell you I'm training for the world to break the world bench press record in my class? No kidding. Yeah, I swear to God. See, yeah. I'm changing the subject. I didn't for know that, man. Yeah, it, yeah, the weight class. You'll laugh. The weight class is a hundred and twenty-three pound weight class, if you can imagine, and. Uh, and it's in the master's division, which is, you know, a fancy way of saying old guys. Um, but, uh, <laughs> know, right? but yeah, exactly. Right. So the, um, the the world record for old guys in my weight class right now, my lift is already about 20 pounds bigger than that. So I'm training for the open uh, world record, which is any age. And I've got to hit a I've got to hit 368 at 123 pounds. So almost triple body weight. And, uh, yeah, for man, for your size, that's massive. That's yeah, working toward it now, man. Fun stuff. I don't kill myself first. So five five oh five obviously is nothing a guy my size would ever touch. And for for most people <laughs> at any size, that's a huge lift. I I just had to ask, man. That's all. I was curious. So yeah, that was. I had a little help on that one, though. I got to admit. 
Oh, fair, fair. Uh, on the Nat, I've never done. I've never done on the Nats more than four fifty-five. Okay, like okay. Four, four with a quarter on each end, you know. All right, hey, let me ask you your opinion on this. So I, I know what you were saying on the Nats. We're talking about anabolic steroids, of course, and right. I've I've had my I've had my go rounds with them, and I haven't done a lot. I've done a little here and there over the years. Um, so here's a question for this record that I'm going to attempt to break. It's it's untested. They're not testing. Do I cycle or do I do I avoid it at this old age? I'm not gonna get involved with that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I wanted to see if you give me an answer. I, answer I didn't think you would say anything, but I wanted to see. Okay. I want to. I want to ask you though. Don't they test or no? No, in some contests, yes. There are ones that are advertised as not as untested. Yeah. And then you know it's a free well, on for those all. ones. You can bet. You can bet all your competition is if that's the case. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty much the answer. I know. I know. No doubt. No doubt about it. All right, man. So you, you you know you you did a lot of stints, or not a lot. You did three stints. Um, you you lost your brother to mm-hmm. to addiction or suicide from addiction, which yeah. is tragic. Um, I know yeah. you've seen your share of violence in, in in your world. What what do you remember a time? Like when everything just really got to you and you were at a low, low time or, or you never allowed yourself to go there mentally and well, emotionally? You know, even as, as much as you try to hold your head up and you do, um, there's going to be times when you're going to, it's going to feel like you're down a bit, right? I mean, uh, that last deal uh, in 99, you know, I'm sitting there, I got the boot of the government on my neck with their full weight. Uh, I can't get bail, even though I should get bail. And I'm not going to cooperate. And, and it kind of brings you down a little bit, but you just fucking it pisses you off a little bit and just drives you a little harder, you know. And uh, but that that was definitely not a high point at that at that point in my life. And what you have to do is you just have to to reconfigure your thinking to to uh, deal with where you're at and what you're doing and, and hold your head up uh, every day smile and, and ha- make the best out of the worst. You know what I mean? So like sometimes they ship me off to uh, like these places that I swear to God, they look like old dungeons, you know, holding and everything on, on transportation and stuff. And you'd have to laugh. You look at like, they'll take the feds will take and they'll have a federal judge will condemn a local jail somewhere like they did in San Bernardino. And then the fed, then the federal uh, prison bureau of prisons, they'll go lease that building after it's been shut down as a temporary housing for federal inmates. Uh, whether it's uh, usually it's it's for people that are still going to court and fighting cases, and they can legally do that. So these are places that have already been condemned. Oh, and, yeah. Well, so you got like I've been in a few places where I've been held there during transportation. You know, I've been on that. Uh, that uh, uh what do they call that thing where you fly and uh con air we all know from the movie con air. yeah i've been yeah. On, yeah i've been on that and in oklahoma city they have a prison right on the airport you never touch the ground the, they roll the thing up uh, the tunnel rolls up to the plane that, and you walk in shackles there's marshals tons of marshals there for all of them and they march you in there then they run you through uh all the uh you know the stuff and then they put you wherever they're going to house you while you're there you know what I mean? And, uh, but you just gotta, you just gotta take, take everything and make the best out of it. You know what I mean? I mean, I've had, uh, when I went to that place, they stuck me in the hole there with, with some other guy that was on another bike club. And that dude 
told, he kept me laughing for five days with the jokes he was telling me. I mean, this guy was a nut, you know? (laughs) And he actually knows people that I know now, you know, that that were in the system and on the East coast, but uh, you just make the best of it. You know, like uh, I remember one time, I'm not going to say who put this, organized this, but I was at one place and uh, they had all the housing units at the prison had uh, uh, bulletin boards, you know, for different things. And, uh, somebody put up a, a, uh, official looking bulletin on the, on the, uh, on the uh, bulletin boards in every one of the housing units that said Tuesday at one o'clock movement, uh, is mattress exchange day. Everybody take your mattress. If you, if you want to get a new one down to R and D. So I'm watching laughing my ass off. I see it looks like ants. You know what I mean? There's like <laughs> right. hundreds of guys oh, yeah. with mattresses over their back. They, they've all got mattresses over their back, leaving from the housing. It's all going through, and they're all jamming up, going through the guard shack with the metal detector over there to get their new mattresses, and it's all bogus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's <laughs> great. Someone got a good laugh out of that one. Were you one of the guys carrying your mattress, or did you stay out of that one? Hell no, man. <laughs> you knew what was mattress. going on. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. You know, you got to, you just got to take whatever's uh, handed to you. You make the best of it. You know what I mean? I had a couple of road dogs that worked out with me. Uh, when you're inside, they call it like your car. Your car is the group of people that hang with you. You know what I mean? And I didn't like hanging with a bunch of people. I just had one or two guys. And these guys worked out with me and watched my back and went, you know, with me everywhere within the prison a lot. And we had a good time and, and you know, had fun, uh, you know, like, I remember they had a, um, a church and uh, they had double doors going into the church. And at the movement, when you're leaving the, the rec yard from lifting waste, we'd have to walk past the entrance to this uh, thing. Right. And they got a pastor in there. That's actually a guard. He's, he's half guard, half pastor. He's got a panic button and the whole thing. So we're walking up there and I said, Hey, uh, I said, Crow, uh, didn't you want to go to church? He says, no, nah, nah, I don't want to go to church. I said, yeah, man, I think you need religion. And I grabbed him around the neck and I put him in a headlock and I'm wrestling, trying to open the doors. Nobody wants to help me. You know what I mean? Because they know what I'm doing. <laughs> Finally, I get the doors open and I throw the dude in and he hits all the folding chairs and makes a big, big thing. You know what I mean? And the guy has his finger on the panic button. He's ready to, to like, you know, rouse everybody, you know, and I said, Hey, Hey, it's okay, man. He just wants religion, man. I was just helping him get in there. You know what I mean? <laughs> everybody in the place like turned around looking and they kind of, they were puzzled at first and then they started laughing, you know, look at you, Rusty, help, helping your fellow man see the way to the Lord. That's, that's, just- I was helping him. Yeah. But you know what? After that, every time we walked by that area, he'd take off running. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I got it. So hey, are you um, want to go to church? Are, are you, are you a church goer? Are you a spiritual guy these days? What, What's no, no, I haven't. I haven't been. Uh, I've I've done it before and and all that. And I believe in God and all that, but I don't go to church. But my brother is uh, a full on. Yeah, you mentioned his own church. church. All right. Yeah, yeah, he's got yeah, he's got a great uh, following and and he does a lot of good, man. He takes truckloads, semi loads even, I think, uh, of stuff down to Mexico to help people that need it down there and all over the country. Plus, he goes into prisons. And uh, what he does is he keeps his eye out for guys that are in there that that need help, that are actually serious about it. And he's actually brought people out 
when they got released into his uh, his his whole thing over there, and he's helped them uh, to get into business, and, and some of them are very successful. They own homes. Uh, one of them's got a trucking business, and I don't know about the others, but he's done a lot of good for, and he does it all the time. That's um, and, that, he, that's, and he's the same kid that used to go with me through the Bahamas, Mexico, and and all over the place. Uh, matter of fact, when I was 15 years old, I was uh, I was breaking in a motor on one of the crop dusters out on the closed runway, and uh, he comes out. He's 13. He comes out in the uh, truck, and uh, he says he flags me down, and I I pulled up over. I was in a Cessna Ag wagon, which is a low wing monoplane with a wing struts. And uh, he says, "Hey, let me stand on the wing while you're while you're taxiing." I said, "All right, go ahead." So he gets up on the wing. He's holding on to the wing strut, and I'm taxiing and I'm bringing the tailwheel up. And he he's like holding on real tight, and his eyes are getting big. So I turned around down at the end of the runway, and I and I next time I got off, I, I got off the ground with him and flew for a minute. And he was his eyes were as big as saucers. He had a smile on his face, but he was scared at the same time. <laughs> And that's your brother, who is now who is now a pastor. He's he, he's the pastor, man. But he's so. Man, yeah. So you and you believe you believe in God. Do you? How do you, how do you stay connected? We talk all the time, me and him. No, you and God. You and God, your relationship. Well, with, I, you know, I just try to do what's right. Let, let me tell you something. Here's one of the things I'll say because we don't have a lot of time. Is uh, I used to play the game. You know what I mean? And I used to do all the this, that, and whatever, right? And. Uh, the way, the way it is, is like, if you're going to do bullshit, criminal things or whatever, there's always going to be the weakest link that's going to take you down. So why even bother? You know what I mean? I don't even want to bother with that nonsense anymore. I just, so what I do is I don't, I don't play the game no more. You know what I mean? So I'm legit. I want people around me in my sphere, legit. And you can have a lot of fun and not worry every time a fucking helicopter goes over your house at three in the morning. You know, <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> like, like like a quote unquote normal citizen, something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, hey, you know what? For many years, man, I played both sides. Like, like you know, I had one foot over here, one foot over there, and it was always having to deal with all this. Because no matter how smart you think you are, the dumbest person on the planet is going to take you down if he's connected to you. Yeah, and people okay. that are That's doing that, advice. people that are taking shortcuts and doing stuff like that, you can't trust. You know what yep. I mean? I do. We've talked about that recently. Yes. I've felt it, man. The three cases I've had in my last life all had people that were informants that helped take me down. You know what I mean? So I don't want to bother with that stuff no more. I feel a lot better being totally legit. I'm, I'm more legit than anybody I know. And I have to be, and I, and I, I I don't give a fuck. If somebody doesn't like it, hit the road. I don't care. Oh man, who's not going to lay? You've done a lot of cool stuff in your life, and I know you said we don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to touch on a couple of those things real quickly. Um, you're you're part of a, a metal uh, super group, if you will, a recording group called Attica Seven. You were you playing lead guitar or, or bass guitar? Lead. Well, I played rhythm lead and lead. Originally, the first album I did, um, I just had I just had the one guitar, me and a bass guitar. And on that album, we had Tony Campos uh, from Static X on there as bass. Okay. And, uh, yeah. and then the second, we did another album, which we didn't even release uh, in the 10 years or 11 years that I was immersed in this stuff. Uh, we've got, uh, I don't know, 25 songs out or whatever. But uh, um, 
you know, I just, I didn't want to have a second guitar for a long time. And then what happened was, is in uh, 2012 or 13, we brought in Ira Black, which is a really good guitar player as a, a second guitar player, because what was happening is, is I was uh, filming on Sons of Anarchy during touring and I had to have somebody that knew the songs that could come on and play. So I figured I'd just have two guitars. That way, if I'm gone, he can still fill, fill it with one guitar when I'm not there. You know? That's a pretty cool lifestyle, man. Back and forth between lead guitar and a heavy metal touring act and a star and consultant on Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty cool duality to uh, to live so do you do you ever like at times like that or, or times like now where, where you're living where you live and and life is good do you look back on the worst times and go oh man i'm just so grateful or is it you just yeah like just come yeah, every I day do. no i i feel grateful man you know sometimes you find yourself like saying man i'm pissed off about this i'm pissed off about that and then i think about the time that i didn't even know if i was ever going to be out of prison again and I'm sitting in a cell with nothing, not even a window. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, man, I got it made. What am I fucking complaining about? You know what I mean? Um, no, I feel grateful as hell to be here. You know what I mean? And, uh, and there's a lot of people that, that don't get that because they've never had to go through serious drama. Yeah. They cry yeah. and they want to, you know, whatever. Man, I got no sympathy for that. You know what I mean? Because everybody out here... I don't care what color you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't care how poor or how rich you are. You have the ability to be whatever you want to be if you want it bad enough. I totally and agree with that. My, just, I'll tell you, take my whole thing is, is I don't focus on one thing. I do all kinds. I do too many things and I enjoy it, but it keeps me from being the best at what I, at one of those things. You know what I mean? I not only know what you mean, that's my self-admitted professional downfall for my whole life is not being focused <laughs> enough in a particular direction. So, yeah, I hear you. You know, we, we are nearing that time. So I want to ask you, what what are you doing now that really excites you? What's like what's awesome in life right now? Yeah, I, I can't say anything that's that's like uh, like stellar like that right now. It's like I'm trying to do a lot of things and I am doing some things and the things that I've been doing already, they, of course, they're not going to uh, get you as excited because you're already doing them. You know, yep. you've always got, you've always got ambition. You've always got things that you're reaching for. You know what I mean? And that's what everybody's got to have is dreams to drive them and keep them moving forward, man. If you're, you know, in, in a life that's just the same old thing every day and you have nothing to look forward to, I can't imagine that. That would just drive you. Yeah, down. and I know we had talked about that before, man. You're 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 definitely a renaissance man for sure. You've had so many different aspects of your life. Um, for the time I've known you, I've never known you to to have anything other than a completely positive attitude and outlook, and just and just be a good dude. And uh, man, I really appreciate you being on today. Um, I'm I'm sure the listeners loved hearing about you. Um, they if they want to look up more about you or learn more about you, what what do you recommend? You know, I, I don't know. There's, I think just about everything these days ends up uh, where you can Google it. You know, yes. so if you go on Google, you'll find uh, pretty much a lot of different things that, from A to Z. And uh, then I just have a, a Facebook that's my name, Rusty Coons. I've got another one, Howard Coons. Uh, and I've got a fan page and, and I'm on there, you know, doing things periodically. 
uh, you know, that kind of a thing. But, uh, hey, man, all I'm saying is, man, uh, if, if there's one thing I can tell you, uh, fucking uh, don't let anybody tell you you can't do anything. If you want to do something, keep trying until you make it. We've seen it with everybody. It doesn't matter if you're handicapped or how tall or how small you are. You can do whatever you want to do if you just have the drive to keep going for it. You know? Dude, that's wor- that's wor- words of wisdom. I think a great place to leave the interview for today. Uh, Rusty, I really appreciate it again. Thank you so much for being on, my friend. Rick Bassman signing off on Talking Tough with Rusty Coons. Thank you, Rusty. Ah, that's good. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.